Welcome to this podcast from the October 9, 2012 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the second session, which included presentations and discussions about findings from the Knight Commission Competitive Research Grant Initiative. Presentations in order are What's at Our Core? NCAA Division I Voting Patterns versus Student Athlete Wellbeing academic standards, and the amateur collegiate model. Presented by Josephine Petuto, Richard Larson, Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Nebraska, Connie Dillon, Professor Emerita of Adult and Higher Education at the University of Oklahoma, and David Clough, Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering at the University of Colorado. Examining Administrator and Coach Perceptions of Value Systems in NCAA Division I Athletic Departments. Presented by Coit Cooper, Assistant Professor of Sport Administration, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Arian White, Assistant Professor of Sport Administration at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Competition and Control in the Gridiron Marketplace. Findings from the Intercollegiate Athletics Leadership Database. Presented by Jennifer Hoffman, Assistant Professor, Center for Leadership in Athletics at the University of Washington. The session begins with an introduction by Gerald R. Turner, President of Southern Methodist University and Co-Chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. The session lasts approximately one hour and ten minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission, and to download the full research reports presented at this session, please visit nightcommission.org. We're very pleased that uh, uh, all of you could be here with us. And uh, as, as Brett pointed out, the uh, resumes of the individuals are available. And so uh, we'll just simply go into their uh, introductions of the first group. And uh, talking about what's at our core, NCAA Division I voting patterns versus student-athlete welfare, academic standards, and the amateur collegiate model uh, will be presented by uh, Josephine Petuto excuse me, uh, at the University of Nebraska, Connie Dillon at Oklahoma, and David Clough at the University of Colorado. So uh, whoever will speak first, please proceed. Okay, thank you, Gerald. David, Connie, and I have been the FARs at our respective universities for many years. Uh, on our own campuses, among other things, we oversee and facilitate the NCAA legislative process. Uh, division I is divided into subdivisions, but proposals are adopted by Division I in its entirety. We increasingly wondered about the efficacy and efficiency of the Division I legislative process. And in particular, we, we increasingly wondered whether Division I voted its core values and also whether each subdivision within Division I was impeded by the other subdivisions from being able to vote core values. The Knight Commission call for proposals gave us the opportunity to take a close look at those two questions, and as it turned out, it also offered us the opportunity to take a very close look at the Division I legislative process and how it operates, and student-athlete well-being over a wide spectrum. 
We evaluated proposals according to the values of higher education, individual autonomy, and by comparison to the opportunities available to all students at a university campus. Uh, one thing I want to highlight at the start is, although we didn't look at and took no position on uh, promotional activities by student-athletes that are sponsored by institutions or the conference or the NCAA. Uh, we did decide that involvement of student-athletes in promotional activities without pay was negative for student-athlete well-being. Because we believe the price tag of proposals affects voting, we also looked at what we call summary cost. In other words, proposals that might generate revenues or savings or impose costs on institutions. We rated a proposal high for summary cost if its impact was widespread, even if the individual item price tag was low. Here you see a little bit, here you see um, the time period of our study from uh, 2004 to 2008. What, what we did in that time period was try to cover some examples from both the Management Council years and the Legislative Council years. There was a change in the NCAA governance uh, during that time frame uh, when uh, prior to uh, the Legislative Council, the Management Council served as both a legislative body and a policy body reporting as a single body to the board. The governance change established two distinct bodies, uh, the Legislative Council, which was the legislative body, and a new Leadership Council, which was the policy body. Both of these report to the board independently. This was done because the board was concerned at the time about being overly bogged down in the minutia uh, and wanted to be able to focus on more substantial issues. Uh, there was a cost, we think, in terms that the Management Council, being a larger group than the Leadership Council, had a greater diversity of voices at the table representing not just conferences but institutional voice as well. And, and we, we have some uh, sense that those institutional voices may be uh, a bit more muted in the new process. I'd suggest if those of you interested refer to Appendix 7 in our report for a detailed description of the Management Legislative Council voting process because it's a really good description of how a bill becomes law, so to speak. And I've got to thank the NCAA staff uh, for their help and assistance throughout this uh, in, in their interests of transparency in help, uh, helping us detail the process in this study. We then recorded how each conference voted on each piece of legislation in the study, and that amounted to 10,695 10, entries, 10,695 entries. And we sorted those by the, the uh, subdivisions that you see here, the FBS and non, uh, the FBS BCS, the FBS non-BCS, and then the uh, FCS and the, the no football, or what we call Division One subdivision. Go ahead and um, we excluded certain proposals, de minimis proposals, non-controversial proposals, emergency proposals. A non-controversial proposal is one that does not adverse, uh, adversely affect student-athlete well-being or academic standards. There's no significant uh, disagreement and there's significant buy-in from stakeholders. Uh, there were no votes recorded on that, so we could, nor were there votes recorded on the emergency proposals. 
An emergency is if the proposal is not adopted, it would be an undue negative impact on core values. Uh, I think I don't, we could not find recorded votes on these, um, and so therefore we did not include them in our sample. The coding principles, the principle for coding legislation evolved from the uh, principles of the study, the articles from the Constitution uh, Joe mentioned. We went through a qualitative process of independent coding, resolving differences, and then refinement of those operational definitions, and then continuing to look backward at, to what we had done uh, in order to, and then to achieve some consistency. As we worked on this process, we found we moved toward increasing agreement. Um, and the process is described in quite detail on page 75 of the study. I do want to say we are faculty athletic representatives. We feel that we have a, a strong view of student-athlete welfare. That's one of our prime roles. But also I want to mention my research assistant, our research assistant, Shereen Pencil. Also, she and I began the process reviewing each proposal independently. Shereen was our check and balance. Uh, on student-athlete well-being in, in many areas. She was a former track and field student-athlete at uh, San Diego State University. She was on her institutional SAC, served on national SAC. Uh, during the time period that a lot of this legislation was uh, being reviewed, and she was a very adept at sharing the student, making sure that we act accurately reflected the student-athlete uh, position. We counted, encountered some difficulties, um, and we, such as, Finding legislation that really was unrelated to core values, like the coach and waiting legislation, proposals with complicating or conflicting subparts, or proposals that really um, we that had other influential uh, factors such as compliance and so forth, and we detail those on page 13 of our study. Once we finalized the coding and recording of the conference votes, then we were able to begin the statistical analysis. Okay, uh, I'll talk about the statistical analysis. As I do so, I am reminded of the incident that occurred to me on a flight from Denver to Chicago many years back, where a young man sitting next to me offered to buy me a beer if I would put my statistics textbook away. Uh, the, what we were uh, able to do is uh, take the legislative proposals that were analyzed, and there were 345 that made it into the final set. And uh, we were able to code them and then also combine them with the voting records uh, by subdivision and overall in Division One. That created a database, and it was on an Excel spreadsheet, and we exported that into a statistical program called Minitab that many of you may be familiar with. And then I carried out a, an analysis of variance procedure, which is standard, uh, in order to determine uh, whether apparently the factors involved or characteristics related to the core values could explain any of the variability in the voting records uh, of the various subdivisions and overall Division I. So uh, we were exploring that, and uh, in doing so, we arrived at conclusions that we found uh, interesting and I think perhaps unexpected. So what did we learn from this? A lot of details on this analysis are available 
in the report and of course I'm available at a later time or with you directly to answer any questions you have about this but perhaps the most interesting finding of the study one might consider to be a neutral or negative finding and that is that we could not determine that the core values of student-athlete well-being and academic standards significantly affected the voting records in any of the subdivisions or in Division I overall. Uh, that is to be clear that these core values did not have a negative influence. They did not have a positive influence. They did not have a discernible influence. And I think that's uh, in, its, in its absence of direction, I think that's uh, an important finding. The other thing that we did, were able to show definitively, is that the economic impact of a legislative proposal was significant in determining its outcome. And there was a period of years early in the study, the first four years of the study, where the FBS-BCS conferences and their institutions uh, did not uh, vote in particular sensitive to economic impact, but those institutions did vote sensitive to economic impact of a proposal in the latter years uh, of the study. And some might speculate that, that there's uh, perhaps a difference in the economic uh, situation affecting universities in the last three years of the study that was different than the first four years, but that would be speculation. The other thing I'll mention is that there were not enough proposals uh, in the database uh, to form the basis for a statistical analysis relevant to the amateur uh, collegiate model, and that was dealt with in a qualitative way and will be discussed in a bit. Additionally, uh, we were able to determine through examination that legislative proposals that had no economic nor competitive impact yet advanced student-athlete well-being or academic standards uh, are supported throughout Division I with greater majorities than other proposals. So just to review there, the key factors is no economic and no, no direct competitive impact of the legislation. Although the study, uh, therefore, uh, may be read to say that Division I in its voting doesn't seem to care about student-athlete well-being or academic standards. Of course, the statistical analysis accounted for about 30% of the variability in the voting results. So there's a big chunk of variability out there that is not accounted for by the statistics. Although it could all be random, we think it's at least reasonable to believe that there are other factors at play with regard to particular proposals. And among them would be proposals that, that uh, institutions might feel really impact institutional autonomy. There are proposals that had clearly had impact on compliance concerns, uh, impact on other core values. The student-athlete experience, for example, needs sufficient competitive balance so that student-athletes at institutions have a reasonable opportunity to win on occasion. 
Um, voters also might decide that a proposal that was designed to advance student-athlete well-being in fact would be unlikely to achieve its goals. Yet another factor might be that at times voters may have had an insufficient or even a mistaken understanding of the meaning of a proposal or its impacts on existing policy. Our experience in reading proposal language, parsing sub parts, assessing rationales, and tracking impacts underscores just how likely this last factor might have been. Uh, also, there were a large number of proposals, as Connie mentioned, that were excluded because they were non-controversial or emergency. Uh, we believe that in doing so, we may well have understated the extent to which Division I would vote those core values. I just did a brief... Um look at some of the sample of the non-controversial emergency proposals, a lot of them probably would have been de minimis, but I think there was a number that did relate to student-athlete welfare that, that might have might have made, a made some of a difference. However, non-controversial by definition would not uh, be assessing cost, uh, uh, cost or revenues uh, related to a proposal because those are generally uh, contra uh, controversial. Uh, in looking at the amateurism pro proposals, Joe and I uh, did a qualitative analysis together and um, what we found is that all subdivisions supported proposals that expanded promotional activity uh, to get more money additional re revenue sources all divisions supported that that is not surprising given the current external environment uh, there were more voting differences among the three subdivisions with regard to expanding professional opportunities for student athletes but generally these proposals will, were advanced as well uh, the other thing that, while I was doing this through the legislative process as a FAR, I, it didn't strike me as much as looking at it now. Uh, the proposals, because I always felt like we're moving more and more toward a commercial model, but looking at the proposals in this, this small sample that we had, look, the proposals that were advanced were very narrow in scope. Uh, from this liberal, then from this limited s sample, it appears that there is a continuing trend that's been a trend since the NCAA was formed uh, to expand promotional to liberalize rather than narrow the applications of the amateur principles but we're doing so in very small steps and I'd, we're running out of time I'd like to, to be able to give a case study of 2010-26 which emanated from the board's promotional task force but I'm not I'm not going to do that but that that is an interesting proposal that is an interesting uh, case study of the tension between uh, moving toward uh, more uh, more commercial model, but holding back to try to stay stay and uh, stay intact with the amateur model. Uh, I'll go over just briefly some of the things we found with regard to governance. Is it on now? Some of the things we found with regard to governance. Uh, there's overregulation. There's no finality in proposals. They keep coming back in different forms. They keep coming back in different form. Proposals are very complicated. Variants of the same proposals do not match A for A, B for B, so it's difficult uh, to vote uh, core values in any consistent fashion. There's no mechanism to force evaluation of proposals against four core values. There's a penchant to chase after last year's problems, which from a process point of view is precisely the wrong way to be doing legislation, combined with interest groups who look to the NCAA to solve very particular, very narrow uh, problems that they may have. Rationale statements are a particular problem. They're offered by sponsors. They vary in quality and clarity. 
uh, and how fully or accurately they describe a proposal's impact. There's no mechanism to evaluate proposals against the full body of NCAA bylaws. Uh, and over time, uh, there's been an increasing resort to going to the Division I board to adopt, for, to propose and adopt proposals, and that has had at least two consequences that we see. One is the override process, that which was supposed to be a correction after a regularized legislative process is now becoming more the only opportunity for camp, real campus input on what proposals are like. Uh, and the other is the, um, the effect on from the working groups and the other special appointed groups. Uh, obviously, end product is affected by who's at the table at the outset. Uh, casserole depends on what ingredients are in there and who the chef is. Uh, Division one councils and cabinets currently are comprised of three athletics administrators to one faculty or broader campus point of view. That division already is skewed. Uh, but the task forces and working groups decrease the greater campus voice even more. Uh, and um, some of the task forces and working groups have presidents on them. That gives presidents the opportunity to be in, the, be in there at an earlier stage. But presidents have a lot on their plates. Uh, and whether presidential control is best affected by presidents attempting to be dealing with proposals in an early stage as, as compared to having full broad input early from which they can make the decision seems to us to be at least a debatable proposition. We uh, had at the outset thought that maybe the Division I no football conference might need a different name and after looking at the data there's a certain fluidity between FCS and no football that leads us to wonder if that shouldn't be merged into a single group. One, they didn't really have distinguishable voting patterns but they also saw fluidity in conferences moving back and forth. Uh, not being placed in the wrong conference in voting records and then having split off conferences because no football conferences have some institutions with football. So uh, our report talks a little bit about that, but that might be one thing to look at. And then a final comment on uh, this slide before I hand it back to Joe is that uh, we did notice a significant difference between the six uh, BCS FBS conferences and the five uh, FBS non-BCS conferences in many aspects and that uh, raises a question about whether there should a division might occur there uh, in organization going forward that might be amplified by principles which are now being put forth that uh, do that attempt to remove the leveling of the playing field when it comes to fair competition uh, having to do with resources uh, uh, associated with uh, institutions. So it raises the specter of the possibility of a division which becomes somewhat of a super conference of high resource programs. I had a well-crafted well conclusion, but I'll let you imagine what it was in the interest of time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank uh, all three of you. And we'll uh, hold questions until we're finished with all three, as I mentioned. Um, our next presentation is examining administrator and coach perceptions of value systems in NCAA Division I athletic departments. Uh, Coit Cooper and Ariane Waite, uh, both assistant professors of sports management at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you for being with us.
Okay. Uh, first off, just uh, it's always nice when you, you get to start with your name being pronounced right. So uh, thanks to, to Gerald, I get Coyote, I get Cody, I've got all kinds of different things. So uh, the first thing I want to do is just say uh, thank you guys uh, for having us here. You know, I know for both, both of us it's an honor to have the opportunity to be here to talk about research and just to thank you for the support that you gave us throughout this process. So, and hopefully uh, by the time we get done with this, uh, you'll, you'll feel proud of the product and feel like it's something that uh, you can use. Um, before I move on, I I've always heard of, of studies, right? You know, there's, there's studies for your classroom where they say with students you have about 45 minutes of retention before you lose them and some studies even say 30 minutes. So we're about, uh, I think, two hours in. And so even if we're at a higher level, um, I understand that uh, retention can be, you know, difficult. So what I'm going to do is just try to make this fun and enjoyable, and hopefully we'll have some good things that come out of this presentation. Uh, just to first to get started, we're going to start by framing this. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the issues, and we don't need to do that much there because... You know, the trend that we see throughout all these presentations is that, you know, the arms race, things that are going on with spending. And, you know, I know with values, and we'll move to the values area, it's something that matters very much to our colleagues. And I think that's where a lot of things in college athletics have gone wrong is that we're not, not only are maybe the right values not in place, but they're not being emphasized, they're not being reinforced. And so that's really where a lot of our excitement for this research project came. Um, after we get done with that, we're just going to go through our study, our data collection, our results, and, uh, and then you'll have a chance, obviously, after everybody gets done to ask questions. Uh, so starting with the statement of the problem, uh, again, the arms race in college athletics, you know, we see individuals from the, first or from the second presentation where there's more and more spending on facilities where our athletic departments at the Division I level, in particular larger athletic departments, continue to spend to try to win BCS games, to advance further in the March Madness tournament. And one of the things that, that we really wanted to get to is that, you know, this is something that's going on, and we wanted to get back to the values here. And, and, and one thing to point out is there's an es escalating commercialism um, that is a product of administrative reward system. And, and this has been touched on in other presentations where, you know, coaches are being hired, and the expectation, if you take a look at their contracts, and there's research that has been done on this, is their expectation is to win. And then you have some smaller clauses when it comes to academic benefits and things like that. Uh, your athletic directors are coming in, and they have the, some of the same things going on. And so you have this administrative re reward system. And then down below here, in addition to having you know, this arms race that's going on, uh, you also have this poll. And some of the research that we've done in the past shows that there is an emphasis on making sure that you're integrating into higher education and making sure that the student-athlete experience is there. And so those are some of the things that we want to talk about in the research. As far as the purpose of the study, you know, the influence of the environment, we've talked about all the things that are going on in college athletics, and I think that core values become very, very important. And not only core values, but taking a look at, you know, what are the ones being modeled by athletic departments. And the next step that we took in this research was not only asking head athletic directors, but asking senior level, associate level, assistant level, and then not only that, but coaches to say, you know, what are the values that are being modeled to see if there's any discrepancies there. And so that's really what we did in this study was, was to go out, find what are the most commonly presented values on athletic department uh, websites and then go to these people and try to ask them what are the ones that are being modeled and I think some of the neatest stuff that's come out of this that we'll talk about are the open-ended responses that Dr. Waite will be talking about in the study. 
Uh, the significance of core values, I, I think for most of you who are familiar with this, is that core values provide direction. And when it's done properly, meaning you have the right core values in place, you know, there's modeling from your higher administrators, you know, there's a better chance that that filters down. And when it filters down and, and those right values are in place, there's a much better chance that you're going to have what's called congruency. And anytime you have the congruency in an athletic department, there's a better chance that you're not only more efficient, but number two, um, you're going to have more motivated employees. And so we're not naive in thinking that athletics are not going to be a high priority, but hoping that there's other things that go into that as well in this process. And then down below here, the final one just to touch on, uh, we've done some previous research where we've taken a look at Olympic sports and revenue producing sports and asked administrators about their perceptions of those. And of course, what you would expect is in revenue producing sports, um, the revenue production is more important and in the Olympic sports, you're more likely to model some of the things that college athletics is supposed to be about. So those are areas that we'll build on the research that we're talking about today. Uh, just to talk to you a little bit about the data collection, uh, one of the things that we wanted to do is because we wanted to go and ask athletic directors these questions, uh, the first step that we took is we went out and we took a sample of athletic departments and, and we went out and we took a look and did an informal content analysis where we were taking a look at what are the most common values that are being put out there. I mean, what is it that athletic directors are, and, and, their, and their athletic departments are saying are the most important? And what we found is that there was very much consistency. And we came out with, we'll, we'll just touch on this briefly, there'll be, you know, 11 organizational values and 16 aspirational values. And, and what we started to notice is that they fell into these two specific categories, with organizational values being the ones, these larger ones that we're all familiar with that athletic departments, you know, hope to be ingraining. And then there was also aspirational, which are going to be more of the leadership type values. So uh, we did that. Uh, we, 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 we got some definitions for those. And... We relied on, on the websites for these definitions, but once we came up with them, we took another step and we put together a panel of experts to look over this, this survey instrument to basically say, are we getting at the right things that we should be getting at? And it was, it was very nice. They gave us feedback on it. We went through this pilot stage, and when we got to the point where it was finalized, we went out and we targeted all Division I athletic departments. And what we did is we send them to head athletic directors and, and asked them to fill out the survey, but we also copied in senior level um, associate level, assistant level, and encourage them to fill it out as well. Uh, and and we, we contemplated doing it you know, separately, but the one thing we, we always knew from our previous research is when you break it off, people get a little bit suspicious and they're maybe not as likely to fill it out. And so we did that. We also did it with the same coaches in the athletic departments. And our overall sample we came out with, which was broken down between the administrators, was 437 administrators and about 1,600 coaches. So, uh, and I can talk to you about those exact numbers if you want to after. So here's what we came out with, and um, you know it's it's interesting that some of the primary ones, and we've done enough studies to where no matter what we do, you know one of the things that comes up first is going to be two things: academics and uh, student athlete experience. But the first thing I want to point out, a couple things here. Number one is this was just administrators on this slide. Number two is that the scale that was used was a priority scale ranging from one to five, with one being not a priority at all, five being essential, four being a high priority, three being medium. So the first thing you notice up here is that all these things range from being a medium priority to a high priority. 
the second thing that I want to point out is you're going to notice this. When I go to the slide to tell you about the different levels, you're going to notice that they're going to be different for head athletic directors than they are for assistant. Meaning head are going to be the ones that are, would be pulling up these values, assistants would be lower. And so we'll talk a little bit about the discrepancies in there. But I just wanted to point out that number one, that these are some of the highest ones, health and safety, athletic excellence. And so these are the ones that were kind of more common, but just letting you know that we're going to get to a point in a second where we have some that will shed more light into what you're seeing up here on the slide. Uh, the aspirational values, which are more these leadership-based, and you could see that with the ethics, integrity, honesty, sportsmanship. Um, those were some of the ones that were rated the highest. On the flip side, when you look at the bottom, the citizenship, self-confidence, passion, humility, lifelong learning, those ones weren't rated as high. But, you know, when you look at them, they're still going to be at least at that medium to high level of priority. So all these things rated high with some of them towards the top end. So. Uh, now we get to the stuff that I think is a little bit more exciting. Is, is anybody ready? Okay. It's a pretty good crowd. That was a good response. I like that. Um, so the variations in the organizational values, I think this is what's by far the most interesting in the study, is when you take a look at the head athletic directors across the board in both of these things, every single instance, athletic directors rated these things higher than the other groups. Now you'd expect that. I mean, they're the people who are setting the vision, probably more idealistic in nature and the things that they want to achieve. But one of the things that we found is you take a look at the, the senior and associate, they were more grouped a little bit here. But when you go from the head to that senior associate to the assistant to the coaches, in every single instance, those things were dropping at the different levels. And so while there's not a, maybe not as huge a drop as we thought we'd find, what you, what you see is as you get to those lower levels, your assistant, your assistant athletic directors and your coaches saying, wait a minute, it's maybe not as high as our athletic directors thinks in our, in our athletic department. So, and then interesting here, one of, the, one of the larger differences between that top level and bottom level was the fiscal responsibility, which has come up a lot uh, in the different presentations. Uh, the next one here, um, is going to be just the aspirational values and there's nothing there's nothing that really I haven't told you on the slide before in that when you take a look at the top level head athletic directors when it comes to cumulative um, but also in each of the individual ones always higher than that next level and then assistant and coaches being being lower and we did run some statistical analyses on both of these uh, different slides and what we found is when you're at that head athletic director whether it's the organization or, or the aspirational, um, there was a significant difference in about every single instance between that higher level and the lower level. So you see some drop-offs there. So I'm gonna turn it off to my colleague. I, I promise you're in good hands and uh, we'll let her finish up. Thanks, Coit. Uh, several open-ended questions were asked of both the administrators and the coaches in order to get a deeper insight into some of these statistics that Coit has, has gone through with us. And these narratives that we got from, oops, do you want to just see the narratives that we got from 178 Division I administrators and just over a thousand coaches really did speak volumes um, and give us a story behind the statistics. So administrators were asked whether there were contradictions between values and practices within their departments. The slight majority, 55%, responded their belief that no contradictions existed. An additional 6% explained their de departmental culture was currently in transition. Either there was a new athletic administrator or they were undergoing a strategic planning process and thus there weren't values to necessarily gauge whether they were in line with them or not. Um, another 10% stated that tensions did exist between resources and competitive demands, but generally uh, the values 
superseded uh, any of the tensions that existed. And then the, the, the scary finding is, is just under a third of the administrators cited that systemic contradictions did exist between values and practices within the administration of their athletic department. And financial gains and winnings were listed as the two forces that took precedence uh, over values when push came to shove. While very parallel in the percentage of respondents who remarked that there were no contradictions, uh, the coach data was a little bit unique in that coaches were much more vocal. It was as though they had been waiting for someone to ask them this question and, and the lengths of responses were, uh, were, more such, were more so and they were also more passionate. Uh, so there was, there was much less of a middle ground. You see 54% stated that no contradictions exist. These coaches elaborated on the consistency in message and actions demonstrated by their exemplary leaders. They commented on the re reputation of intercollegiate athletics in the media and said how far contrary that is to what is practiced within the walls of their institution where values were practiced daily and, and these were translated to the athletes within their institution to provide an optimal experience. Another significant number of coaches, however, 41% noted that contradictions do exist within their departments, and these contradictions varied with the majority voicing concern over the considerable administrator hypocrisy that exists within their departments. Uh, coaches said, our athletic administrator will say one thing and do another, that the prevailing attitude is do as I say, not as I do, and, and many of these narratives were extremely troubling. Uh, the next most common subcategory coaches elaborated upon related to the value practice contradictions was based upon the variation in standards administrators practiced between sports within the department. And Quate mentioned our, our prior research that looked at the difference between Olympic sport priorities and revenue sport priorities. And so uh, it's, a, it's a divided system within those athletic departments with, with values and traditional academics emphasized within the Olympic sports and profit maximization emphasized within the revenue sport. Uh, other common responses within uh, this category included ex uh, coaches expressing a lack of financial support from the administration to facilitate the value achievement with their athletes, winning prioritized over values, little communication with or care for coaches and staff despite values that ascribe to unity or a family atmosphere, and then the other responses included gender equity proclamations versus practice, widespread hypocrisy in collegiate athletics not limited to their institution, financial concerns prioritized over values, and um, inconsistencies related to recruiting, academic standards, athlete discipline, diversity, and coach accountability. So as we're in an era where intercollegiate athletic morals are continually being contested in the media and in general and academic discourse, it's critical to understand the values that are driving these decisions within the educational departments, within these educational departments. The results of this study provide evidence of sound ideals and practices. Uh, as I mentioned, there were 55% of coaches, over 500, that passionately defended the, the practices within their institutions went on and on about their incredible leaders and the values that were culturalized within their department that everyone walks the walk and, and strives to provide this phenomenal experience for athletes. 
Um, the additional findings within the study, however, support many of the headlines, citing widespread hypocrisy and even uh, patronization of internal and external stakeholders. At minimum, looking at the quantitative findings, this points toward poor leadership, leaders that aren't vocalizing the values or filtering them through the organization. However, you know, taking a step deeper, looking at the qualitative responses, some of these discrepancies uh, are, are more serious than poor leadership. They point toward, like I mentioned, um, purposeful and, and, and maybe deceitful, uh, hypo hypocratic um, or practices of hypocrisy within the athletic departments um, in word and in action, which undoubtedly translates into examples of unethical behavior and appalling experiences for students. So um, going forward, in, in order to progress toward the hope of, of a brighter future within intercollegiate athletics, it is imperative for internal and external stakeholders to demand values-driven leadership based on inspiring and education-centered ethos. It is important for departments to have consistent messages and actions from the top down for hiring and firing decisions to be based on these values and for intercollegiate athletes to feel these values in every administrator and coach interaction. Again, this study provides evidence that this model does exist within some schools where um, the benefits cited throughout organizational behavior literature are evident and some of those are listed up there. When you look at these benefits, uh, which were incredibly evident in many of the passionate coach responses, it is clear that this is the best model and one that departments should strive toward. This quote is one of over 500 passionate coach responses that champion the culture of their departments. Statements such as these represent the often forgotten voices that we don't see in the headlines very often. Um, and these experiences rarely, uh, rarely are those that we talk about. Statements like these remind us of the tremendous opportunity for good that there is within the industry of intercollegiate athletic education through athletics. This morning, President Cartwright commented on the Commission's hope for a real-world orientation of the research, and, and I'm going to try to summarize our research with two takeaways. Um, one, drawing upon business best practices as explored extensively in the organizational behavior literature, there are tremendous benefits to value culturalization within athletic departments. Institutions clearly, that clearly state, continually emphasize and model the behaviors of value-driven leadership hopefully led, as President Castine emphasized, by a board that is educated in best practices will function most effectively and should be the model for all institutions. And two, administrators and coaches uh, act within the parameters of an administrative reward system. And currently, as, as quite mentioned, many administrators and coaches are rewarded based upon commercially founded metrics. Aside from the need for fiscal responsibility, these reward system must stop or at minimum uh, be mitigated. Um, drawing upon suggestions in the Restoring the Balance publication and our findings, academic and education-centered metrics should become the basis for personnel decisions, partic particularly at the coaching level, as these coaches, hungry for structure, 
are the front line to the athletes um, which this educational industry exists. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, we'll go to the uh, third, and then we'll have some questions. Uh, Jennifer Hoffman uh, is going to present Intercollegiate Athletics Leadership Database, and she is an assistant professor in the Center for Leadership in Intercollegiate Athletics at the University of Washington. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. First, I want to thank the Knight Commission for funding this research. I would also like to thank the Center for Leadership in Athletics and the College of Education at the University of Washington for their support of this work. I'd also like to offer special acknowledgement to collegiate directories for their contribution of data to the IAL database. The contemporary culture of college football often brings conflict between educational values and commercial interests. This is characterized by the gridiron marketplace. It's one that's intensely competitive, known for conference realignment and bidding wars for prominent coaches. There's a growing emphasis on winning, undergirded by beliefs that increases in spending will also increase generated, uh, generation of revenue and success. There's also concerns over program integrity. The NCAA Board of Directors is expected to pass new guidelines for accountability and responsibility for presidents, athletic directors, and head coaches. If passed, this will go into effect next year. And finally, the FBS playoffs are slated to begin in 2014. This is expected to generate an additional, an additional $600 million in new revenue from the national championship title game, two semifinal games, and additional bowl games. The IAL database provides a tool to begin evaluating this gridiron marketplace. It compiles data on FBS presidents, athletic directors, head coaches, and non-coaching personnel. It provides a system to examine evidence about the relationship between the escalation in spending, program success, and revenue increases. The initial database queries that I will show you in a few moments have generated baseline measures on the average term and turnover of leaders of these FBS programs. And I'll also show a couple of slides about how we might start to operationalize and understand the expansion of non-coaching personnel. These baseline measures provide a framework to evaluate the gridiron marketplace and evaluate changes, if any, as a result of these changes in the competitive marketplace and new accountability practices. The first set of queries ask about term and turnover, as well as questions about the expansion of non-coaching personnel. What has been the turnover of presidents, athletic directors, and head coaches at FBS programs? What's been the average term of these leaders over, over the past 21 years? Are there differences in average term by conference? And we'll disaggregate that by BCS status. The automatic qualifying conferences are the ACC, the Big East, the Big 10, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. And we've also used the term the elites. The non-automatic qualifying conferences, Conference USA, Mid-American Conference, Mountain West, Sunbelt, and the West Coast Conference. And finally, I'll note about changes in the expansion of uh, non-coaching personnel. So a little bit about how the database is structured. The data I'll be presenting is on presidents and ADs and head coaches. There's about 1,500 of those individuals. For everyone else, that's assistant coaches and non-coaching staff. There's about 4,000 individuals in the database. It includes 21 years of data from 1991 to 2011, and it's institution-based. The data is grouped into three uh, segments. Athletic directors and presidents oversee the athletic program. The on-the-field coaching staff, this is designated by NCAA guidelines, which permit one head coach, nine assistants, and two GAs through 2011 
with the beginning of this season, uh, August of 2012, uh, NCAA guidelines permit four GAs. These individuals are responsible for skill development, game strategy, traditional activities during practices and games. For the purposes of the IAL database, we designated non-coaching personnel as the off-the-field personnel that support what happens on the field. They're not permitted to coach in traditional football drills or games, and there's limitations on their recruiting activities. They also perform other program operations and department duties. For the purposes of non-coaching personnel for the IAL database I'll presenting, be presenting on today, there's five categories. Football operations, strength coordinator, video coordinator, and equipment manager. The fifth category, which is recruiting coordinator, was discontinued by the NCAA in 2006, and those duties were given to an assistant coach. So turning now to examples of queries that we can run from the IAL database. One of the queries that we asked is what's been the turnover since the implementation of the national championship title game as it's structured today. This began in 2006. It's a useful time point to evaluate turnover. It marks the first season where the national championship game was played in a separate, standalone, and distinct event that was different from the other BCS games in that year. When you look at the slide, you'll see that in the pre-2006 years in the gray, that we see a, a slight decrease, uh, I'm sorry, um, a little change, if any, for presidents between the pre-2006 years and the post-2006 years. For athletic directors, there's also a slight decrease. But for head coaches, there's a slight increase between the years prior to this new championship format and what we have today. This will be important to follow through the remainder of the, of the current BCS title game format and then compare that to the playoff game format that we'll have in 2014. It will also be important to follow any changes from previous years if the NCAA passes new head coach responsibility measures as are expected to be passed by the NCAA Board of Directors. The next series of queries are measures around the average term of individuals at their institution. This is for presidents, athletic directors, and head coaches. Because the IAL database is institution-based, we use a cohort average. Simply put, this is all individuals in a role at each institution in that given year. The IAL database begins in 1991, so we don't have a full account of the term for those individuals in the earliest years. Anyone that was on campus before 1991, we just don't have an accounting of their full term. This is likely a contributing factor in the lower averages in the earliest years of the data set. The same is true for the 2007 cohort. Anyone who was on campus in 2007 and who is also there today, we don't have a full measure of what their term will be. This slide illustrates the cohort averages for presidents, which is eight years, athletic directors, eight and a half years, and head coaches at seven years. When we ask questions about, uh, about the term of individuals and we disaggregate by conference affiliation using the BCS status, you can see here with this, the cohorts are listed along the bottom, the average number of years is along the top, the red line is the average for that, in that group of individuals. When we disaggregate by BCS conference type, there is little change in the automatic qualifying conferences and the non-automatic qualifying conferences for presidents. 
It should also be noted that the average term for a president at any institution is subject to many other considerations, and that this data on presidents is simply presented as a comparison point. Next, when we look at the average term for athletic directors, there is much more variation between the automatic qualifying conferences and the non-automatic qualifying conferences. What's notable about the term for athletic directors, particularly in the non-automatic qualifying conferences, is that in the early cohorts, it is on the rise. <coughs> and finally, looking at head coaches, Head coaches are more similar to presidents in that there's less variation both between the cohort years as well as between the BCS status conference types. Head coaches of non-automatic qualifying conferences have the lowest overall average term of any group. Shifting now to the expansion of non-coaching personnel. As I mentioned, we evaluated five roles that provide on-the-field support. For equipment managers and strength coaches, it's consistent and unchanged for most institutions. For every school in 1991, they had at least one equipment manager and one strength and conditioning coach, and that trend holds through to until 2011. As I mentioned a moment ago about recruiting coordinators, they drop off after 2006, and this was because of the shift in guidelines that moved the recruiting duties to an assistant coach. Where we saw the greatest increases in the job title was for video coordinator and football operations. For video coordinator, there were zero in 1991 and 117 by 2011. This slide illustrates the differentiation and I think speaks to the issues that the Knight Commission has raised around the expansion of non-coaching personnel. Along the bottom is the total uh, number of individuals with football operations in their job title. You can see that in 1991 there were two and by um, 2011 there were 121 instances. What's more notable is in the middle part of the data set, we see, start to see this differentiation where we start to have more uh, football operation titles also connected with assistant or associate athletic director. This growth in FBS operations and the increase in the title at the administration level speaks to the concerns that have been previously raised by this group. And another point and a final point on non-coaching personnel. Generally speaking, they're very difficult to quantify and to triangulate. There may be multiple individuals with similar titles at any institution. Media guides sometimes vary from staff directories. And it's not always clear what role these individuals fill. It's also not always clear what level of experience is needed in these roles, and particularly at the level of football operations. And finally, their attachment is not always clear. Does someone in a non-coaching personnel role have more attachment to the department and therefore the institution? Are they more closely connected with an assistant coach or a head football coach? To summarize the findings, for average term for athletic directors, it's higher, especially among the automatic qualifying conferences. For presidents and head coaches, there's less variation by BCS status. And for head coaches, the turnover is up slightly since the implementation of a title game that's been separate as part of the BCS model. For non-coaching personnel, there's been an increase in football operations and video coordinator and recruit, recruiting coordinator has dropped off. The IAL database is set up to monitor events and changes in policy. Our next step is to follow the baseline measures and to develop new measures. 
The next set of queries from the IAL database are to continue to monitor the averages and the turnover, compare trends by the BCS postseason as we know it now into the playoffs in the future, but also to introduce new variables to the reporting, perhaps introducing salary costs or measures of success, perhaps that's been lost, but maybe there are other measures we would explore, and also attaching departure data to turnover. What were the reasons for departure if a, if a head coach um, or president or athletic director leaves an institution? But also, what was the profile of someone who comes into an institution to fill a void? What were those circumstances? We'll also follow the changes in football operations and what might be the effect, if any, of having four GAs assigned to football instead of just two. And certainly expansion to FCS. Before I conclude, I want to leave you with some policy considerations. Data from the IAL database offers evidence for institutions wrestling with conflicts between educational mission and the gridiron marketplace to consider, such as identifying the conditions that lead to coaching turnover, understanding the financial impact of coaching turnover, recognizing patterns of hiring coaches who were previously dismissed from another institution, highlighting issues of accountability, related to the term of head coaches, ADs, and presidents, and illustrating the impact of playoff system revenue increases. In conclusion, Robert Zemsky writes in his book, Making Reform Work in Higher Education, that in the gridiron marketplace, being market smart and mission-centered does not lessen the conflicts, but it does provide operating principles for letting the academy proceed in the face of those conflicts. The IAL database provides a system to examine evidence informing operating principles that address conflicts in the gridiron marketplace. Thank you very okay. much. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. And thank all three of the groups or individuals. All right, uh, are there any questions from uh, committee members or commission members? Okay, Carol. I just want to begin at the end and ask a practical question about the database. It's obviously, uh, robust given how many people are in it, their different position responsibilities, and how long you've been building it. What kind of access do you provide to other researchers? Because there are so many questions that could be asked of it. You chose a particular subset for this study, but are there ways for others to get access to it, Jennifer? That's something that we've talked a lot about in our center. That's something that I'm very personally interested in. Um, the IAL database provides just one uh, data point or data set, and there's many other data sets that um, could be leveraged um, either collectively or individually. Um, and it would certainly be my intent in the future to um, work with partnerships and, and make the database available. Those plans are not in place yet, but that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. Okay, any other questions? One of your conclusions, Jennifer, was based upon uh, sort of an expectation that years in service by the AD or the president, I think it's your fourth point, I can't remember exactly what it is, but years in service was related to something or the question was about uh, uh, maintenance of the values and so on within the, within the individual school. Is there anything that made you expect that to occur? I mean, is there some literature history or things like that I mean so and I'm it didn't say which way it was going that the longer service resulted in less or the shorter service and more or whatever I just wondered it was puzzling 
One of the curiosities that I've had um, throughout this process um, is higher education a very stable system and that just looking at the last 20 years you know, may give us some trends in turnover, but maybe you're looking over a longer period, maybe 50 or 60 years. Is, is it a very stable system or is it a very dynamic and changing system? And, and that's one of the questions that I think I have going forward. Um, with regard, I think, to your question about the term of presidents, is that correct, mm -hmm. and accountability? Mm -hmm. I, I do have curiosities about, um, and we've talked about this, and we've heard this by the other panelists today, what is the right balance between the leaders of the, of the athletic program, other aspects of the campus, and the leaders of the institution for finding that right um, uh, balance for check, that right set for checks and balances? Um, I, I don't know that we have a, a good answer for what that balance is or putting our finger on it. I think the data from the IL database can, can really only reflect what has been in the past. We might think about measures that we could um, develop that would be based on something that's more forward-looking. But certainly, from a, a standpoint of, of institutional accountability and the relationships between these different actors, the IL database just gives a framework either to look at the system broadly or to look at individual institutions to be able to measure their own um, specific context against these other baselines. Any Gerald, other? I have another okay. one. Okay, go ahead. Uh, if I may, go ahead. Uh, to the uh, what's at our core team, uh, you talked about other factors that might influence the voting pattern, and you had a number of them listed. One was institutional autonomy, but no noticeably absent from my point of view anyway was the role of the conference did you look at that or get any even anecdotal information along the way that might give us a sense of the the role of the conference in assisting their schools about how to vote the general answer to that is no although we did uh, discuss some of uh, the uh, conference votes in the management council and the uh, tendency at least in some com conferences to direct votes if there's a majority institutional position with regard to particular proposals i think that's probably as close as we came to that issue yeah i had a question uh, or a couple of questions for dr cooper and dr wait uh for, for first of all in your data did you see any variation in responses uh, by athletic department classification, that is to say uh, FBS versus FCS, and did you see any variation based on whether um, it was a revenue-generating or a, a non-revenue-generating sport? Well, we did not do statistics on those, like a chi-square, you know, looking at the difference uh, between the different divisions or the different sports, mm -hmm. but anecdotally, I I did see a trend in that direction, and also um, overlap. So I don't know that we would get significant results, but I certainly saw a, a majority of of FCS schools and Division One schools without football that had a more positive experience. But there were definitely FBS schools that had extremely positive things to say as well. Yeah. So yeah, and, and that's what I was going to point out as well. We we've done some studies that the, the ones before the Olympic and the revenue producing, and we thought going in that for sure we would see distinct differences between FBS and 
and, and non, and, and we've ran those things, and, and a lot of times you, you don't find them for whatever reason, but you do see, if you look at the individual data, like what Dr. Wade's saying, that there are some athletic departments, even at the FPS level, despite what we see in the media, there are ones where if you look at the open-ended responses and you combine everything, where, there's, where there, everybody you, you, you talk to from those institutions say they do a great job, you know, we have, our values are known, you know, we have educational sessions for those things, we constantly have, you know, values that are shown throughout the athletic department, so, I think there's probably more of a pressure there, but we, we, we haven't found in the past like distinct statistical differences on it. I had another, uh, Gerald, one other question. Um, you, you know, it's one thing to find out what people say their values are, and then it's another to assess yeah. do they act on those values. So ha have you thought about a study that would now go back and look at uh, what decisions are made? For example, you know, I, I think I could argue that the conference realignment, when it creates huge geographical uh, differences, works against the welfare of the student-athlete because of the travel. Or another example might be the contracts that uh, I, I, ha I have a suspicion that the contracts provide huge incentives for winning and very modest, uh, maybe even token incentives for academic uh, success of the students. So my question is not so much did you look at that, I don't think you did, but have you thought about a study that would actually compare uh, stated values with institutional actions? Yeah, yeah, we have, and, and, and this was a start to that because one of the things, and, and maybe it wasn't, we didn't make it perfectly clear, but what we asked them as we moved down that ladder was to say which of these are the highest priority by you know, at the top of the athletic department. So we started to get at that, but I think certainly as you move forward, you know, whether it's a case study or we're going more in depth asking those questions. And one thing that I've really thought about from being and listening to all the different people in the room is that not only what we've done, but also going to staff members. I mean, when you look at the University of North Carolina, some of the problems that we've had, you know, of course administrators are involved, but they're staff members down below. And as athletic departments get bigger, I mean, they're big, and at the University of North Carolina, there's all these different areas, finding out what people in the different areas are saying about these as well. So I think there's a lot of room for growth in this area, and the one thing we knew going into it was that there's not a lot here. I mean, there's a lot in business where they look at values, very solid studies, but not enough in this area. And, and that's the thing, when we look at these things and, and you start to, you almost get frustrated in a way because you're looking at that fiscal responsibility and some of these things and saying, why are they what they are? We started to get at those with the open-ended and certainly you know, want to do that in the future. So um, if there's things you're not doing and you have suggestions, please let us know and we'll take well, it into consideration. Another, just adding quickly, another way to look at it, adding to what Coit mentioned, was looking at the contracts and, and the administrative reward system that is right. currently in place. And that's, that's something that, that can be quantified and we can look at what, what are those metrics that are leading to promotion or salary increases? And that's a very clear evidence of, of that commercialization driving decisions rather than uh, potentially academic excellence and student-athlete experience. Val? Uh, thanks, Gerald. Um, I guess a question for Ms. Hoffman on uh, the turnover rates. It, it seems to me, particularly in football and men's basketball, there's sometimes an overlap in the hiring pools between the collegiate and the pro. You know, you often hear about or read about or know about um, uh, a college assistant coach who's going to um, the NFL or vice versa, NFL assistant coach coming back down and coaching at the intercollegiate level as a head coach. And I guess um, 
you know, do you agree that would be instructive to sort of be able to track in some way those back and forth movements? Because I think at least in part they're, they're helping fuel salary increases. I mean, a school could say, you know, we really had to have this assistant coach from the Steelers become our head coach, but that's a higher price point than if they were to bring somebody in from uh, another intercollegiate institution. So, you know, with all the things that you, you know, you want to add to the system, it just seems to me because cost is such an important factor here in this sort of analysis, it just seems like that would be a... I just wondering what your thoughts were on that subject. So, yeah, so a couple of, of points. First, I think on the, the beginning of your question was, would, the, would investigation um, and attaching data to the turnover, whether it be to the NFL or to retirement or whatnot, would that be useful? And I think that's where we really need to start with, um, with this data set and, and with a lot of other, other data sets that are out there, is, is what's going to be most helpful for us at the institutional level to make decisions or at other levels for policy making. And so if, if the question, um, is asked in such a way where the IL database can answer it. If, if there really is curiosity, and it would be helpful to know if the coaches are moving fluidly, if there's sort of pathways back and forth between the pro sector and the college sector, then I think if that's determined to be a valuable question, then data sets like this can begin to answer that. Um, and work into the point earlier about working with other data sets that already exist and being able to attach um, other uh, data around salary and creating new variables um, could also be very instructive. One thing I didn't mention in the, in the presentation is that in some of the non-coaching personnel that's not categorized in the data set yet because it's so difficult to get our hands around is uh, terminology that you would hear in an NFL um, setting, player development, player personnel. And if at least from a symbolic level that um, raised question for us, how do, we, how do we categorize that or how do we operationalize that in a collegiate setting? So I think there is a lot of room for investigating um, both from a uh, quantitative data standpoint, but also from a qualitative data standpoint. Uh, what is the relationship and what are the pathways between these two sectors? Anita? Um, I wonder how many of the coaches are actually faculty or faculty tracked that have the, the academic responsibility as well as coaching responsibility and if that made a difference in their tenure. So the, the data that we used was staff directories, um, both paper form from the previous uh, era where we used paper phone directories, um, and from electronic staff directories. And that's not clear in the FBS model, um, the old Division I-A model. Um, to see that information, I think we'd have to go back to things like collegiate directories or departments of physical education, more historical or archival material that would give us that information. Um, and instead of trying to track all of Division I or something like that, um, I think that could be done with a sample of institutions. Um, even in the contemporary era, era, using media guides and things that are electronically available, a sample might give us a good sense of, uh, at the different, sector, uh, the different levels of NCAA, where there may still be faculty that have um, some kind of coaching appointment. Okay, thank all of you again. One real quick, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you um, um, look, uh, Dr. Hoffman, looked at um, the growth in personnel, mm -hmm. and it was quite telling. Have you uh, thought about looking at the compensation levels of, uh, of particularly of head coaches? Uh, is that something that you're exploring, or is that what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, most definitely. So this, again, gets to this partnership um, question about uh, the IAL database doesn't currently have salary information, but there are um, lots of sources, the Department of Education, USA Today, that regularly track um, and triangulate good sources of, of data that we could match up with what's in the IAL database. 
and then after a turnover by an individual or looking at an institution when they have a new individual, we can look at uh, salary of one person or the entire football staff. We could also look at overall or sec sections of the athletic budget before and after to see if there is an escalation, a moderation, or if it uh, stays the same or if there's a decrease. Jack, spotty for the private universities. Right. Yeah. Very. You, could, you could look at the publics and get some, and I doubt if they're going to be that much different yeah. in the Jack, compensation. And I, and I would just build on these two points and, and just encourage us to take a look at the assistant coaches. Mm -hmm. um, I, our instinct is that, that that's been an area of rather significant growth. And it may be we're, we're masking some things if we're, if we're looking at some of the other. Right there might be where, where we might see some real, real challenges. And, and I would agree that the assistant coaches are not quite as unwieldy a group to get your hands around as the non-coaching personnel, but there's more of them, and there's much more variability in their, and their mobility. And so, um, so building models that we can really uh, realistically track them um, is challenging work. All right. Well, thank uh, all of you, and thank those uh, previous all six presenters. And uh, Carol, thank you for coordinating this for us. And these are very good. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit knightcommission.org.